0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I want to really thank you for fighting through the weather and for not looking out your window and staying in bed, but venturing out here. And we're a little lighter numbers than usual today, but we'll have a more intimate service. And I want to remind you when you're driving home, Drive slowly and cautiously. Um, I also want to give a special shout-out to our trailer team. Today, like, Days like today are extra tough for those guys because they have to leave their houses extra early and dig the trailer and the truck out from under feet of snow. And so today was a really tough day for those guys, and they were heroic in their efforts. So I think we ought to just recognize that... This normal setting we're used to doesn't happen by magic, and uh, so really want to thank those guys for coming out this morning. Uh, for those of you who are, are are here today, you are most welcome. Glad to see some new faces and some faces we haven't seen in a while. We just want to welcome you in the Lord. And every year at the start of the year, I like to kick off with a message that I hope will set a certain tone for us as a church for the whole year. Last year. Uh, we started off the year with a series on discipleship because that's something we wanted to think about all year long, was are we growing as disciples of Jesus Christ? And this morning, uh, I want to start with a message called Sweeter Than Honey. And it's not a message about the benefits of stevia. It's It's a message about the Word of God, the Word of God. And I feel really strongly about this this year, that it's my prayer this year, 2014, will be the year of the word of God at our church, a year of reawakening to the power and the joy of knowing what God says. So let me start with the question. How many of you guys, I want to actually see a show of hands. How many of you guys have one of these at your house? Raise it high. Let's see them fit arms and say, okay, so let me ask you another honest question. Because when you bought one of those and you brought it to your house and you put it, Somewhere where you did, did you have delusions or i shouldn 't say delusions visions of grandeur you you pictured yourself every day like reading the newspaper as you 're jogging and you 're up at four in the morning did you did you picture that kind of in your mind like had, maybe this is kind of like the vision you just pictured yourself looking out the window at the greenery and just running and you feel great, but is this more like the reality? How, let me see another show. How many of you guys, your treadmill is a clothes hanger or a clothes storage device? So that's what mine was for a really long time. And uh, if that's the case for you, you're in good company. Americans, we spend about $4 billion a year on fitness equipment. $4 billion with a B every year. But according to the New York Times almost 40% of the people who buy that fitness equipment say that they almost never use it at all. So in other words, home fitness is a donation program. It's corporate welfare, really, because we're donating money to these companies who are selling us a vision of a better us that often doesn't materialize. I think much the same could be said for Bibles in America. Obviously, you probably have a Bible at home. Every year in the United States, 65 million copies of the Bible are either sold or distributed in this country every single year. In fact, 88% of Americans own a copy of the Bible. That's pretty astounding, considering that 88% of Americans are not followers of Christ or even acknowledge that the Word of God is the Word of God. But 88% of Americans own a copy of the book, And the average American household has 4.4 copies of the Bible, according to the American Bible Society. Despite the ubiquitous presence of the book called the Bible in American life, the truth is it's really not that much a part of our lives. Um, Biblical illiteracy, I think, is at an epidemic level. And listen to this statistic by Lifeway Publishers, 19% of Protestant churchgoers read their Bible every day, and 81% do not. So 8 out of 10 of us are not having a daily relationship with this book which we have claimed and which God has promised is his word for us. I think a lot of things get in the way of our spending time with Scripture. There's so many diversions and distractions, but I know that even in this modern age, it is possible to devote yourself to the study and the relishing of God's Word. I I didn't clear this with him ahead of time, so I hope it won't embarrass him, but I always think of Marcus when I think about a love for the Word of God. Um, He is an oddity in our culture that he doesn't watch television. It makes me so uncomfortable. Because he spends his time in the Word of God. And I, just, I really love the idea that, that it's possible in this world that we live in to devote yourself to the Word of God as a, a source of real pleasure, real satisfaction. Now, this biblical literacy that's, I think, rampant in America has led to some very embarrassing results. Do you know that less than 50% of Americans can name the first book of the Bible? And here's one that I thought had to be wrong at first. Uh, But it comes from a a a very good source. Twelve percent of Christians in a nineteen ninety seven poll thought that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. (laughs) That's got to be wrong. It just twelve percent of Christians thought that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. So anyway, I know that one of the most common New Year's resolutions for followers of Jesus is this year we want to read the Bible more. can I just, I want to, I'm going to take a risk. Can I just see how many of you feel that's kind of strongly this year? Like this is something you want to commit to is reading the Bible more regularly? Thanks for raising your hand. That's encouraging. I felt that very much in my own life. And uh, I've, I've started something that's a personal project that I think is going to be sustainable for me, a, a way of reading the Bible with great motivation every morning, because I'm not only reading it for myself, I'm reading it for one other person as well. And so if you want, you can ask me about it, I'll share it with you. I, I don't want to talk about it in the sermon, but uh, I feel very strongly at a personal level that this is a year I want to grow in my relationship with God's Word. And because it's such a common resolution for Christians at this time of the year, I want to give you three invitations to understand why reading God's word regularly is of such importance and benefit for us. And I don't mean this just religiously. I mean it actually helps us in the life that we care about. So the first invitation is this. When you read the word of God, you're invited to see. You're invited to see. Travel back in time with me to the Garden of Eden. And there's this amazing garden paradise, everything is good to eat, all the fruit are amazing looking, everybody's naked as jaybirds, and the animals are getting along, and there's lush greenery, it's an amazing place, and in the midst of that setting, a snake and a woman are having a conversation. It was quite a struggle to find an appropriate image of Eve in the garden, talking to the serpent, Uh, and managed to find this one. And I want to trace out for you from the New Living Translation this conversation that is taking place between the snake and the woman. And I want you to pay attention to the words. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say... I was going to hiss those words, but I decided not to. Did God really say... You must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden. You already see what he's trying to do there? Here's what Eve says back. Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So far, so good. God had communicated to Eve very clearly. Eve had understood him very clearly. And so there's no confusion here, but the devil's still trying, right? The serpent is continually trying to chip away at the clarity and the certainty of what she, do, what she knows and believes. So then here's this next gambit. You won't die. It's just an outright bald face. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So you see what's happening in this conversation is the starting point is God has spoken clearly. She has understood and known him clearly. And the way that the serpent is trying to seduce her away from God is by chipping away at that certainty of introducing doubt. He's trying to muddle her clarity and thinking with Doubts about God's nature and character. He's trying to give this impression that God is actually withholding. He's secretive. He's dishonest. He's lied to her, and he's insecure. He doesn't want you to catch up to him. Oh, don't eat that. It's sort of like you know, you know, when a daddy says to the kids, "Don't eat this chocolate. It's it's yucky chocolate," because he wants to eat it all for himself. Maybe that's the picture. that that the serpent wants the pain of God. Do you see how often that happens to us? We start our lives following Jesus with a great deal of clarity and certainty about who God is, but over time, the world and God's enemy will constantly chip away at that certainty. And the way he'll do it is by casting doubt on your understanding, your view of what God is like. He'll begin to try to get you to think that God is different than what you always thought. That maybe God isn't so kind to you after all. Maybe God's not paying attention to you. Maybe he he gave you something and then just stopped paying attention and went off. And now you've got to live with the stuff he gave you. Maybe it turns out you think God is like your earthly father after all and not such a nice guy. Whatever the case may be, all she had to do at this point in the conversation was say, time out serpent, shut up for a second. And she could have called God over. God used to walk around in the garden in the cool of the day. She could hear him, see him. All she had to say was, God, this steak over here is saying that if I eat from that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, nothing's going to happen to me. In fact, if I eat it, I'm going to be just like you. Is it true? Do you see how simple that would have been? All she had to do was invite God into the conversation, look right at his face, a face that she'd always known, and ask him point blank, is it true? But she didn't do that, did she? She continued to engage in this conversation with the serpent and left God out of the picture. And in that absence of God's clear voice, she started to believe that what the serpent was telling her was true. I think that scene gets played out again and again and again in our lives as well. We leave God out when we shut his voice out from the conversation of our lives. And there are a lot of other other people trying to tell us what's what. And some of them are just outright lying to us. Oh, go ahead and have some fun. Nothing will come of this. It's harmless fun. Go ahead. Just try it. People are trying to damage us and lie to us. And at those moments, all we have to do is invite God into the conversation, and he'll clear up the mess right away. But when we don't do it, the results can be devastating. Look at what happens to Adam and Eve. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious. I wonder why God allowed the the forbidden tree to look so good. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then, as we often will do, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, nothing good happened. Their eyes were opened, yes, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When we neglect God and his word and leave him out of the conversation of our lives, the results are devastating. And the story of Adam and Eve's life and their departure from God plays out again and again all over the world. In fact, it may be playing out in your life Right now, every day we're surrounded in this country by the Bible, the Word of God printed in pages on black and white. And every day in those pages, God is speaking to His people. He has truth, clarity power, encouragement, hope to bring to the life we actually care about. Not just to a religious life, but the things you whine about to your friend at Starbucks, the things that keep you up at night, that make you worry, that you groan about. Things that make you feel like, ah, oh, why is life like this? That's the life that God is speaking to every day. And God's enemy is speaking to you at the same time. You know that picture of the little red devil and the little white angel on your shoulders? That's not so far from the truth. All day long, voices are speaking to you, trying to win your heart and your understanding. And when we neglect God's voice in our lives, His word, what we end up doing is shutting Him out of the picture so that the voice that keeps talking starts to become more and more convincing, more and more believable, and it starts to shape the way we think about things. It clouds our vision so that what we see is what it tells us to see, not what God tells us is really there. That's just the way it works. We end up having to wander through life like blind people in a fog trying to figure out what's going on by circumstantial evidence when in fact God has actually given us the truth. A distorted picture of God will drive you away from God. That's just the way it works. I remember hearing a false rumor about a friend of mine in college, and it really caused a rift between us. And I was a young, you know, when you're that age, you think you know everything. The truth is you actually know almost nothing. You are about as stupid as a box of rocks at that age, but you don't even know it. That's the ultimate stupidity is to not know you're stupid. And that's who I was at that age. So I thought, well, I'm going to believe the rumor, and I'm going to have a problem with this person. And we started to drift apart because I thought, that the rumor I heard depicted this person the way they really were, and I didn't like what I was seeing. The truth was that the person spreading the rumors was an evil serpent. One of those people who just loves to see things rip apart. And and what I learned then was this, that when you have a distorted view of a person, you you feel driven away from that person. When you have a clear view of that person, you can be drawn to them. And a lot of people have walked away from God, not because God disappointed them, but because they never challenged this growing distorted picture of what God is like. I've heard people say some really horrifically er 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 erroneous things about God. Things that aren't true about God at all. And they walk away from this God that they've invented like, you should walk away from that God, but you're not actually walking away from the real God, are you? And when you don't have a clear picture of God, there's very little chance that your spiritual life and your soul will flourish. Because at the heart of everything that is faith-oriented is our picture of what God is and what he's like and how he moves and acts in our lives. And if you think he's unfair or boring or stodgy or judgmental or cruel if those are the pictures you have of him in your heart, there's no way you will have any interest in walking with that God for very long. You are right to walk away from that God if that's the God you believe is out there. And so when we look at God's word, a clear picture develops, and we begin to see ourselves and our lives clearly as well when we see God clearly for who he is. If you don't commit yourself, to looking at God's word, letting Him speak in the conversation, I promise you that it will be so easy to influence you. I know people who think they're so they're so thug, you know, like nobody influences me. I do whatever. Those are the people that are so easy to manipulate. So they're so convinced they're independently, but there's no actual protection over their heart because they have not. They have not stood their feet on the solid ground of any truth. They're making up truth as they go, and they don't realize what shaky ground they stand on every day. They think they're making up their own minds. How naive. That's the very person who is subject to the slavery of everyone who intends to influence them. Why do they do what they do? Why do they feel and think the way they feel? Why do they even dress the way? Because someone else told them, that's cool. I chose it all by myself, don't worry. No, you didn't. You are at the mercy of everyone who wants to tell you something unless you have the voice of God in your ear. And when you allow God's word into your life, that distorted picture of him starts to clear up real fast. Incidentally, what happened with my friend in college, whenever that kind of stuff happens to you, here's my advice, go straight to the source. Just, hey, come over here. Somebody told, I'm not going to tell you who, but somebody told me blah, blah, blah. Is it true? And look right in the face. Just like Larry David. Just look look right in the face. And will they lie? And if they pass that smell test, they have told you the truth. Never take it on second evidence, on another person to say so. And I think the same should be said of God. If you really want to know what your God is like, Let him tell you himself. Let him represent himself truly in your life. By the way, uh, King David says in Psalm 119 that there is no need to stumble about in the darkness, living life in a fog, wondering what to do next, what life means. He says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And can can I just honestly ask you, could you use a little bit of light in the path ahead of you? Are any of you at a crossroads where your industry or the economy or your, your partner, or your mate, your friends, your family are creating storms of change and forces in your life that are causing you to move when you haven't planned on doing so? And you have some, you have some hard choices you got to make. There's internal pressure building up. You know something's got to be different, but you're not exactly sure where to go. And so you've sat on the edge of change for the longest time wondering... What to do next? Could you use a little light for the path ahead of you? God promises that his word will be a light for the path ahead of you in your life. You put that to the test. I promise you this year, you will walk with a greater sense of certainty and security and confidence. Now, maybe you have been far away from God's word, but here's the wonderful thing. He invites you back right now, right away. There's no preamble. There's no hoops to jump through. You can pick up that book today and ask God to speak. And when you return to God's word after a long absence, it's sort of like when the lights happily come back on during a blackout. You know how in the beginning of a blackout, it's so romantic and exciting. Everyone's running around getting candles, and you play, like, board games and candlelight. But after about an hour or two, you're like, this is getting really old. I'm so sick of this. I want to turn my computer back on and see what... And when the lights come back on, isn't it the, just the most comforting and assuring thing? And that's what it feels like when you return to God's word after a long time away. Let me give you a second invitation, a reason why returning to God's word has such real benefit for our lives. And that is that it invites us to hear, hear. Google's chief executive, Eric Schmidt, once made this observation. He reported that every two days now, we create as much information as humanity did from the dawn of civilization until the present year. He said that in 2003, it hasn't stopped being true. Think about this. Everything that was ever written or recorded, music, pictures, photographs, books, letters, notes, we are we are making that much information now every two days. That is the world we live in. It is an information overloaded, noisy world we live in. Here's another observation um, that an author named David Shank made in a book called Data Smog. He said that Americans are exposed to an estimated 3,000 media messages per day. Now, when you you think about it, that's in the form of logos, ads. You're trying to watch a YouTube video and that, that little ad comes on and I'm finding, maybe you guys agree with me, lately the ads, it says skip ad in five seconds. I'm finding myself watching a lot of those ads because they're as good as Super Bowl commercials. Pretty good ads. And what I realize is it's true. These media messages are bombarding my brain all day long. And it would be okay if they were just background static, incidental noise, but they're not. Here's what the, the, I can't believe there's such a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists. I kind of want to join. It just sounds like a cool group of people. Uh, they, what they realize is globally, corporations spend at least $620 billion a year making messages and in advertising intended to influence your purchasing decisions. So here's the truth of it. Our world is filled with data and noise and lots of voices, but they're not just random voices. They are voices that are being paid for at tremendous cost with a very targeted agenda to influence you and me. They are not just lots. You know, I have this this little app called Coffitivity on my Mac, and I use it whenever people are being obnoxiously loud in their conversations at a a coffee shop, and I keep listening in because I can't help it. And it's very distracting. So I play this app, and it replicates the sound of ambient coffee shop noise. I'm in a coffee shop listening to artificial coffee shop background noise so I can concentrate. And and the truth is, background noise is soothing. It doesn't require any attention from you. In fact, it, it soothingly drifts into the back of your consciousness. But that's not the nature of the voices that bombard us every day. They are targeted, intentional, creative voices whose sole purpose is to change the way you think and behave. You've got to understand that there's a difference between background noise and thousands of intentional messages aimed at your heart and your mind every day. And if you are not intentional about counteracting that glut of voices, you're done for. You're defenseless in the midst of a battlefield, and you're going to come out with arrows stuck all over you, wondering what happened to you. Why do you do what you do without even understanding why? Why have you bought things and done things and made choices you don't fully believe in? The honest answer is you are so easy to manipulate because you're defenseless in this onslaught of voices unless a greater voice, a a voice of reason and a voice of wisdom and a voice that comes from someone you love and trust drowns out all those other voices. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've noticed that when you talk to your kids, they pretend that they're answering you, but they're not actually listening to you, are they? How many times have you said to your kids, are you even listening to me? They're like, "What, what? It's so easy not to listen. You will not hear God's voice accidentally. I mean, that's just the bottom line. You won't be like, oh, what was that? Oh, that's God's voice. Thanks, God. Thanks for that accidental. I tripped and fell into your words. It doesn't happen. Unless you seek that voice, you won't hear it. Here's what Jesus said in John 10. He promised us that his sheep will recognize his voice. The suggestion, and in a very very, uh, agrarian kind of economy, in a world where shepherding was very common trade, people all understood this, it's uncanny when you see shepherds in action. I studied in my doctor of ministry classes under a professor who lived in the Middle East, traveled with Bedouins for a year and a half, living among them so he could write a a doctoral dissertation on the, the image of shepherd in the Bible. He lived a shepherd's life for like a year and a half in the desert with Bedouins. And he said, it's amazing that it goes both ways. The shepherd knows the sheep's voice. He'd be talking to a shepherd, and he goes, hold, hold on. And he would say, oh, that's the sheep with the big black spot in his butt. I could tell he's in trouble. And all he's hearing is, meh, meh, meh. he can pick out the one sheep, and he knows which one it is. But it works the other way around, too. Everybody would be walking all over this busy marketplace, and the shepherd goes, meh, 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 meh. <laughs> And all of a sudden, like 15 different sheep from all over the place come and gather and they're like right there because they know his voice. And the suggestion is this. This is not because the shepherd's voice is the loudest voice or because the shepherd's running around shouting into the ears of his sheep the way we have to shout to our children to be heard. But that the minute that voice sounds off, there's a discernment that happens. They're listening for it. They know how to understand it and discern it from all the other background noise. The idea is that those who know God's voice, there's a discernment there. It's not just that God drowns out the noise with his voice, but that we're listening for it. In 1 Kings 19, there's this powerful story, an account, where God appears before the prophet Elijah, I think partly because Elijah was a little discouraged and needed to see God. You know how sometimes the phone call's not enough, and you just say, I just want to see you. I'm going through the ringer here for you, and I just got to know you're real. So God's like, well, careful what you ask for. I'm going to pass before you, but you better hide in in this rock because it's it's going to be a little overwhelming for you. And at first, there's this, I, I think, really a classified finger of God twister. It says a wind that broke the rocks apart comes, okay? And then after that, there's an earthquake. And after that, there's this great fire. So you've got tornado, earthquake, and inferno, and then... It says after that, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. So God is not in the noisy, loud, abrasive things, but after all that's done, he comes in a gentle whisper. And you've got to wonder why he does that. It's because it seems that God speaks to people who are inclined to listen. God's not a screamer. You know, some, some parents are screamers, aren't they? They scream all the time, 24-7. That's why the kids can't hear them. They're just so used to the sound of your screaming. It doesn't even sound like screaming anymore. It just sounds like mom's voice. Come to dinner! Oh, mom wants us to come to dinner. Why are you here? And after a while, what you realize is kids go, that's mom's just how she talks, you know. And guess what? They're going to grow up learning to talk just like you. It's going to be embarrassing when they talk to each other like that. You're like, who does your talk like? Oh, <laughs> I guess I did. When you yell all the time, it's not that noticeable anymore. Watch a good teacher with an elementary school class, and I've seen, it's like magic. You know, here's me going, hey, all you kids, stop running around, stop screaming, come over here. And they're ignoring me. A veteran teacher comes up and goes, if you can hear the sound of my voice, clap once. That's not going to work. If you can hear the sound of my voice, clap twice. And within 15 seconds, the kids are all sign, clapping three times. I'm like, are you a witch? What, what is this, what is this magic? It's because sometimes the most noticeable thing is the quiet thing. And it's, it's like this. When you want to hear, you really strain to listen, you will hear. You will hear. God talks to people who are inclined to listen because he understands in his infinite wisdom what a colossal waste of time it is to talk to people who aren't listening. Do you realize I see everything up here when I'm preaching? And three Sundays ago, we set a record. In 20 years of ministering at this church, three weeks ago, we set an all-time record of the largest number of you who are dead asleep during the sermon. Every week, there's some of you doing the whole... And then some of you pretend you have a headache or like you're praying. I get that. You're kind of half asleep. Three weeks ago, a full one-third of you were like having deep REM sleep, like you're dreaming. It was amazing. And I don't take it personally. I've I've passed those days up a long time ago. I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not mad at you. But I know this. God was speaking. You didn't hear anything that day. A third of you, you got caught up on your rest and nothing else happened that day. Because God doesn't force himself on us. He speaks and the only way you benefit from that voice is if you're inclined to listen. And in the midst of all these other voices, it's so important to intentionally listen for God. Do you know why the Bible is called the Word of God? Because it is God's primary voice in the life of the Christian. Yes, he speaks to us in other ways. He speaks to us through the mountains. I look at the mountains and I see God. What did he say? Mountainy things. Like he's expansive and big and mountainous. What else did he say? I don't know. I just really dig mountains. Yes, he speaks to you through nature. He speaks to you through loved ones. He speaks to you through the quiet voice in your heart when you pray. But the primary voice of God in our lives is nowhere else than the word of God. And if you neglect the scriptures, it's unlikely you will hear much of God's voice anywhere else. If you neglect the book that people bled to preserve, that God died to to make possible for us. If you neglect that, I doubt that a lazy prayer of God, tell me what I should wear today. Tell me what job I should take. I don't believe you're going to hear much from God. I think you're going to hear a lot from yourself. I think you will be incredibly susceptible to every influencing voice from among your friends and your family, but I don't believe you'll hear much from God's voice. If you neglect God's primary voice in your life, it cannot be substituted by all those little little pieces, those remnants of his secondary voice in our lives. You cannot ignore scripture And go look at a mountain range and grow in your faith. It doesn't work. It won't happen. You can try and you won't succeed. But if you're in the word of God, those mountains will come out like an HDR photograph. They will pop, boom, boom, boom. And you will hear angels singing while you look at those mountains. God's primary voice for us is found in scripture. Let me give you one last invitation. And that is to taste. You know, when I was a younger single man, uh, I was wired a little differently than I am today. I was kind of weird. I, I had some serious uh, OCD tendencies, and I would get really absorbed in what I was doing. I was very obsessive, and so when I got absorbed in a project or in a study, I would get so into it. I, I just would I would sit at the same place and do it all day long, and around. 10 p.m., I would get this weird, agitated feeling, like, oh, what's this discomfort I'm feeling? And I goes, oh, I'm hungry. I'd gotten so into the work, I hadn't eaten anything since dinner the night before, and it's 10 p.m., and I go, oh, that's what I'm feeling, this growing irritation and, and discomfort is hunger pains. Because when I was younger and single, food was just not very important at all to me. It was like a complete non-factor in my life. When, the day I got married to Jeannie, I weighed 129 pounds. That's less than Noah ways right now, the day I stood at the altar next to Jeannie. I, I just was a wisp of a little, and I wasn't always this huge and statuesque. I was a tiny little guy. And that's just because food wasn't that important. It's what I later, in, in, when I became a pastor, I, I would call accidental fasting, is I would spend an entire day not eating, and it was only when the not eating was unignorable because it has an effect on you. One thing I've learned about food is you're supposed to have it every day. I had to actually learn that. Some people, they want it all the time. That was never my problem. It wasn't until I got married that Jeannie introduced me to the concept of time to eat. What, what do you mean time? I just eat whenever I can't stand the hunger anymore. I just eat. She goes, no, no, it's 6 o'clock. It's time to eat. So I learned the concept of sitting down with the intent of eating food. But I learned something in my old way of living, and that is if you don't eat, you can't ignore the consequences. It's going to have an effect on you. And here's what I'm convinced of. Some of the things you think are personality flaws or spiritual attack or psychological mental illness, some of it's really that, but a lot of it, the the easily distracted kind of thing you have going on, the ill-tempered kind of thing you have going on, the grumpiness, the inability to fight bad attitudes the weakness towards the things that tempt you, that sense of worry or unease or emptiness you can't shake, a lot of times those things are not spiritual issues in terms of like attack, it's expressions, manifestations of spiritual malnourishment. Your body might be large and in charge, but your soul is emaciated. In heaven they have TV shows looking for sponsorship for you, for this person on earth whose soul is like gaunt like this because you're starving. I think the reason some of us experience what we do in our personality in our temperament in our spiritual dynamics is not because anyone's attacking us or because we're singled out it's because you're starving your soul. It's undernourished. Try doing all the workouts and never eating proper nutrition. What do you think will happen to you? You will faint over and over in the gym, won't you? Nancy, am I right? You will faint, won't you, in the gym. If you starve yourself and you work out all the time, here's, here's what you're going to look like. That's going to be your workout. You know why? Because if you don't nourish that body, it's not going to serve you. It will collapse. You can't pretend that you're running on vapors. At some point, malnourishment demands attention. Some of you, I can assure you right now, what's going on in your life is a manifestation of spiritual impoverishment. Your body is fine, but your soul is shriveled. It's not shriveled because you're evil, It's shriveled because you've neglected to feed it. Just like the body requires food, the soul also requires food. Moses, in a powerful, inspired speech he was making to the people of Israel, post-wilderness wandering, as it was drawing to a close, he says this to them. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years? to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Listen to this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why? It wasn't about the food, but here's why. He says, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word That comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here's what Moses is saying. The reason God allowed them to go hungry in the wilderness and then he made food fall down from the heavens is to teach them a spiritual lesson. And that is your soul is much the same way. If it doesn't eat, it will starve. You cannot just keep going on human food alone. You can't run on adrenaline and just put your head down and with sheer force of will keep going. Some of you have been trying that for 20 years. You're about to run out of steam. It doesn't last forever because you are not infinite. You can, keep, you can keep it up for a pretty long time. I'll grant you that. I've met some people who have run on their own power for a while. But it is really devastating when those people reach the bottom of that tank. It's almost suicidal because there's nothing left now. We don't live by bread alone, but we live by the word of God. It is bread for the soul. Can I just give you a challenge? And I know not everybody here is a parent, but this is especially relevant to parents, I think. When your children look at you, moms and dads, what do you think they see? When they listen to you, what do you think they hear? I know a lot of the parents, um, one thing I'm very proud of is at our church, we have very involved parents. You are at every excruciating concert and recital and game, even the ones where they're losing 64 to 35, and you're like, <laughs> by the way, a little tip, um, have your kids participate in sports that have games, not meets, okay? meets last all day long. Swim meets, track meets, gymnastics meets. <laughs> no me gusta. <clears throat> so you're involved, and what they see is every year, you, you plan a great experience for them. You, you want to expose them to the best things of the world. You take them out for nice dinners on their birthday, you plan a great vacation. None of those vacations has anything to do with your enjoyment, does it? You know, For the, for the, the first 10 years of your children's lives, every trip is for them. Isn't, just, it's just so like everything you do is for them. That's great. But what do they see when they look at you? What is, what is that essence they're receiving? Because here's the truth. I've talked to youth kids when I was a youth pastor who said, yeah, my dad's a great dad, but it's like he's hollowed out inside. I don't know what it is. He's a great dad. I mean, he's always there for me. I can trust him. I talk, but it's like he's empty. He's hollow. I would never go to my dad to ask serious life advice. I just don't feel like he would give me what I need. He's fun. I'll play catch with my dad. I know my dad will cheer for me in the stands, but I don't know if I'd go to my dad for life, real life, because I don't know if he's living real life. I'm not making that up. That comes from the mouths of many teenagers, and I knew their dads, and I think they hit it head on. When our souls are impoverished, you can't compensate for that by showering others around you with attention and creativity and money and good experiences. What we're really giving away is the aliveness of our souls. And if that's dead, there's not much you can offer to the people around you. And so I want to encourage you, pay attention to the condition of your soul. And if you can't do it for yourself, do it for the people who need you to be alive. Here's the great thing about the Word of God. King David, I'm I'm going to wind down here with this. This is where the, the sermon's title comes from. He testifies about God's Word, something that most of us, it's rare to feel. That he says of God's Word, it's sweet. It's sweeter even than honey. And that's saying something because Krispy Kreme wasn't around in King David's day, or else he would have said it's sweeter than Krispy Kreme donuts. In his day, honey was the sweetest thing you could find. And if it was sweeter than honey, no one knew what you're talking about, because what could be sweeter than honey? And it's his way of exaggerating to say, I can't even put it in words. When you read God's word... It is a satisfaction. And how do you explain to someone who has dead taste buds? Imagine you met someone who, like, it was mouth blindness, right? They couldn't taste anything. You're trying to tell them why chocolate is so pleasurable. And all they can feel is its textures. You know, It's so good. What do you mean good? I don't know. Like, how do you explain it to someone? And so he's trying hard to say, when you really are in the zone with the word of God, There is nothing that feels more truly satisfying to the innermost being than the word of God. There have been a few times that I've really lived for an extended time in that zone, and I can testify, David told the truth. That when you're really with God in his word, there is just nothing that hits the spot quite the way. I think God's word is like Korean food to me. As I've gotten older, I can't go without Korean food. I need it. When I was younger, I could go decades without it. Now, I have to have it. And when I eat it, I think, oh, this is food that's resonating with my DNA strands. It's food that is more satisfying to me in its essence than any other food I know. And the word of God is like that when you're with God intimately. It is a satisfaction that has no parallel in the earthly experience. I'll give you one last verse to make one last point. The prophet Jeremiah said this. When your words came, I ate them. The word has really devoured them. Like he I picture cookie monster, Jeremiah. Me love God's word. He ate them, and he said, They were my joy and my heart's delight. At that point, he's just copying David, right? I mean, it's the same thing, right? It's the same, it's the same language, but. Here's why it caused such delight. Because I bear your name. The words were sweet to him because they came from someone who was sweet to him. It's like the difference between reading someone else's love letters and reading the love letters that your lover wrote to you. You know, I've never been that fond of poetry or, or country music which is really lots of, like, basically love songs with guitar. But when Jeannie used to write me these letters, and because it was unusual for her to be so expressive, you know, like, and so when she write these letters, I treasure them. And I've shared it with you before. I carry them around in my study Bible. When I'm in a bad mood, I read them because they delight me still. 20 years later, the love letters she wrote to me still make me feel good inside. It's a mystical thing. I... I, don't, I can't really explain it, but it's not that her words are so good. She's not that great a writer, right? I mean, she's okay. I'm not going to let you read them, but give them a C plus in terms of love letter E. But I remember what I felt knowing that she was saying those things to me, and I had a massive crush on her at the time. And that's what makes those particular words sweet, is not that the words themselves are always so full of life, but they remind me who is saying them to me. How much he loves me. How much he's already done for me. How he's promised that even when I'm sleeping, he won't sleep. He will keep guard outside of my room, watch over me. He will never grow weary of me. He will never get sick of my repeated confessions. Every time I ask something, he's willing to listen to my request. More times than I can count, he's outdone what I've asked of him. This is the one who writes these words. They're not just words. If that's all they are, no wonder we have no appetite for them. But they're the words of the one whose name we bear, the lover of our souls, the one who cares for you and me. Those are the words that you're reading. That's the way you must learn to read God's word. That's what makes it sweet and delightful and joyful to us. And so I pray this year, it will not be the year of religious reading of a holy book, but I pray that this year will be a dangerous, exciting, unexpected adventure, opening up God's word, letting him speak, rejoin the conversation of your life. Then you will see him clearly. You'll hear his voice in the midst of all the noise, And you will taste and your soul will come back to life as it receives nourishment. And you will delight in the way it tastes. May this year be the year that God's word is that way for each of you. Amen. Let's bow together and let's just close our service. We'll invite the band back up. But I just want to pray for us. And before I pray, I want to invite you to just have a moment. You heard a lot this morning. Which one of those invitations right now perhaps means the most to you? Is your picture of God being distorted by lies? Are you tempted to walk away from God and his people because you're developing a really negative view of him? And I think you need God's word because you're seeing wrongly and he wants to show you the truth. (laughs) Could it be that you are being influenced by so many voices? They're not evil voices. They're voices of people you care about, but they're not the voice of God. And the more voices you hear, the more confused you become, the more lost you feel. And maybe you need to return to God's word because his voice has to crash through all that static and noise. maybe you know everything up in your head but it's been a while since you wanted to eat, you've lost your appetite and even when you eat it doesn't taste good anymore I think the simple prayer is God, remind me who you are to me I think I've forgotten that you're the one who cares for me when no one else does you're the one who stays awake, keeps watch even when everyone else has turned their backs and has gotten sick of me You have never failed me. You never will. When everyone else is gone, you'll be there, and I'll be with you. And Maybe that's what you need to remember, to savor, to taste God again in your life. So I'll give you a moment to reflect on which of those invitations most is relevant to you this morning, and then say something to God in response, and I'll pray for us. Let's pray together. God, our world is filled with books. The last thing we need is another book. So we pray this year together as a church that your holy word would no longer be just a book. They would be the life-giving words and voice and savory tastes of the God that saved us, the God who loves us. God, some of us in this room right now have souls that are so malnourished. Outwardly, we're flourishing. Inwardly, we are wasting away. That's exactly the opposite of what's supposed to happen. And so we pray that you would give us a taste for your word again. God, we just confess some of us flat out lack discipline. It's hard for us to make any habits in any area of our lives. And so we ask you to show your supernatural power in this commitment to take and eat your word. Come and show up in our lives. Do a miracle. Make it possible for those of us who wrestle with discipline to remain faithful and consistent to eating your word. And as we eat it each day for nourishment, we pray that a day will come soon and very soon when our taste buds will come alive again and we will delight and be deeply satisfied in what we're reading and hearing. May this year, be the year of the word and the voice and the presence and flavor of God in our lives. For our sake and for yours, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.